I love that hat. Thanks. So do I. I, got I don't like hat. I don't like baseball at all, but this <laughs> is a great hat. I got a new hat today. Wow. What does that say? Cabela's Club. What is what? that? That is very familiar to me. What is it? It's like a, a hunting, fishing, outdoor activity giant store built to look like a lob cabin with stuffed animals in it. I mean, taxidermied animals in it. <laughs> stuffed animals. <laughs> Hey, is stuffed it, animals are serious business. My children, I was worried the other day, they were having a discussion. If Jesus were a baby cheetah, would he have stuffies? And uh, I had to run into the room yelling, no, don't, you'll reignite the schism of 655 in Palermo. And they, they did not solve that liturgical question. Beautiful. All kids are weird. I I'm feel just like picturing this place exceptionally weird. full of stuffed animals, like children's stuffed animals. Mm-hmm. and you can buy a gun there yeah i'm picturing yeah, it's, a, it's a plushy hunting lodge exactly yeah. well, where do you think plushies come from canada they have to be hunted cold beautiful Welcome to episode one of the Jaunty Mantis podcast. And our tagline for this podcast is creative questions for curious gamers. And that's kind of our introduction into this space. This is going to be our first aired episode of this podcast. And in true fashion, we have with us our co-host, Jesse, say hello. Hello. And also we have a special guest with us, Rich Ronaldo. Rich you are the originator, designer, creator of a role-playing game called Velvet Generation. So why don't you start off by telling us a little about, about yourself? Yeah, Velvet Generation, um, I'm, I'm one of two creators of it. Me and uh, Scott Leighton, my um, writing partner on it. Uh, we originally did an edition of this uh, back in 2002, and... It got resurrected uh, in Kickstarter form in 2018, uh, and as with most things in the pandemic, it's very late, but it's <laughs> just been released recently. Um, yeah, I'm just sort of longtime gamer, occasional game designer. I don't know what else there's <laughs> say about about <laughs> about about me in particular, but that's that's what I'm doing here. Well, back in the day, Rich used to be a regular at our table. He was a mainstay in our group. Jesse and I, we go way back gaming together, and it's always a pleasure to have Rich at our table. And I really want to say thanks for being on the first episode of The Jaunty Mantis. Jesse, what can we say about the Velvet Generation? What is the overall view of this? I'm not going to make Rich tell us what it's about. What is what is it from a fan perspective? Glamrock aliens uh, are a big part of it, and uh, a sinister and very cleverly named governmental organization that suppresses all art and culture. And then uh, Revolution Man, uh, and very disappointed Glamrock aliens uh, who arrived 
on Earth to find uh, that there was no more rock and roll. So they're going to fight the system with a lot of humans. Um, and that is, to me, a, at least in my perception, a, a change. I'll get onto that in a minute, but I do want to jump into my first question, if that's okay. Uh, Rich, how do I hack this to play in 5e? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm probably going to be, uh, those rules will be, will be forthcoming, you know, now with the new, uh, uh, D&D license and everything, I can finally, I can finally put it out in the system that I always wanted to see it in <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, yeah, you're going to have a halberd. It's going okay. to, it's going to kick ass. It's going to be great. Can you get a, uh, Glaive de Guzarme or, uh, a Beck Corbin? If I remember, I do. I do want to bring back all of the pole arms. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's going to be largely okay. pole arm focused. Are there special rules for a katana? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you know. Obviously, it can cut through. You know, the the the, the barrel of a tank. Um, uh, no, no armor will 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 last against it. This is really the core of the rock and roll gaming experience. I find is katanas. Yeah, my my only critique, having been through the book, is that there you didn't use the Palladium weapons table. Um, <laughs> uh, no, in all in all seriousness, uh, I'd just like to ask about the origin. So the original game that this was updated from, uh, I hope that's the right word, uh, was Star Children, and uh, I heard that there's a little bit of uh, an origin story to where Star Children came from. It was sort of like a lot of things weirdly uh that i've gotten involved in it was kind of a joke that got out of hand this was i think going back must have been like starting around like 2001 uh early days of the rpg.net forums um me and scott wanted to we want we wanted to to uh uh kind of do a, a a bit of a troll on there and try to this it sounds really quaint right now based on you know how connected everything is but we thought we wanted to convince people that we had like found this gotten a hold of an R- a small press rpg um that had basically this concept um that was published in the uk and that it was like this super obscure kind of hipster thing um and we you know we're going to start a, a a thread of people ask you know asking people if they've seen it you know stuff like that and you know this was back when like i don't think like if something like that were to exist it wouldn't be like trivially easy to find it basically so it was it was conceivably something that could still be a joke it was maybe the last or conceivably something that could could be real maybe the last time in like internet history where that was the case and like hardly anyone really bit because it was actually kind of a dumb idea considering there were a lot of people on that forum who it wasn't strictly Americans on the forum. So that might've like worked to, you know, in a, in a smaller uh, tight knit community. But what did happen was a bunch of people were like, well, I know you're lying, but this seems cool. You should make it. So we ended up making it. And well, uh, I don't know if that thread is still around anywhere, but I kind of hope not because it's probably really embarrassing. What was the original impetus behind the concept? Like, what were you envisioning it? Well, I mean, originally, like, like as far as the the the, the troll post one, it was just going to be like, let's see how many people we can get to believe this 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 obvious bullshit. Um, there's been a few things that we've done like that that have been a little bit more successful, but um, uh, I think we had started kind of kicking around like sort of talking about like glam rock or like rock opera like 
tropes kind of um we've been doing so for a couple years and like you know the 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 concept of like a rock opera type uh game had vaguely been taking form and i was like trying to think of like what is the most like if you averaged out every one of these uh concept albums about rock music being illegal and just like just came up with what the like center point of all those was and that's this is pretty close to 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 what we landed on i think it's like like the way we were talking about this for a while was like kind of akin to like you know the the origins of like um uh you know the yacht rock series weirdly parallel to that that's really interesting because i you know you of course had told me that story before and i just wanted to get it out there for the audience um it that game uh would have really i feel like been an outlier in the rpg community at the time um but come back to today nearly 20 years later and velvet generation uh just seems like a natural fit for the indie games community um would you say that you felt I don't know. I, I don't know how in touch you were with, you know, the broader aspects of the community while designing, but would you say in working on this one, uh, there were more resources and support available than there were when you were trying to design the original? Oh, yeah. I mean, resources and support for sure. Yeah. Um, as far as like there being a community at all, I think. Um, I mean, the Forge existed while we were doing this, but I wasn't reading the Forge and it wasn't really that kind of game anyway. So, you know, that wasn't really going to, gonna, um, be that big of an influence but like yeah it was pretty much just like we designed the first one based on like just stuff we kind of cribbed from other games that we liked basically and there wasn't yeah there wasn't really a a, a place where you could like run ideas by people um you know the 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 play testing process is like wildly different now um uh I took some variation of Velvet Generation to um, the design conference Metatopia, like two or three years, I want to say, starting in 20, the first time I went to Metatopia was 20, 2018, you know, like breaking it down and like being able to run tests and run like small concepts by people um, rather than kind of the shot in the dark <laughs> that you would take, you know, back then was like, you would like mostly design the game, like you would get it mostly complete and then show it to somebody. And by that point, like um, it's a little harder to receive feedback and that kind of thing. But, you know, now we've got like internet communities, we've got, you know, real life places, we've got like organizations and stuff. So yeah, there was, there was a, there was a, a ton more support. Uh, with that uh, aspect and connection to community, are there any designers uh, or games you want to shout out who you kind of see, you know, the DNA in your work? I guess I would say, yeah, like, like just from my aspect, I mean, most of the, 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 the parts of this that, that I wrote had to do with like the game system and, and the game as a game pretty obviously cribbed a fair bit from Greg Stolze's one role engine uh, in doing that. Um, the core mechanic is like kind of an iteration on that, basically not close enough to be like, officially that system kind of thing i think a lot of the campaign structure is kind of informed by me at least reading and at some points playing or running um a blades in the dark campaign anyone who's familiar with that game who reads this would probably be able to see like oh yeah this was kind of cribbed from there 
those are the two that I can think of that is like the biggest like influence like on the game itself. But yeah, in terms of just like community and having people, you know, having having like a a, a deep well of cool ideas and best practices to pick from. Um, the like I said, the Metatopia community has been great. I've been a member of the indie game developer network since 2018, I want to say. Um, and that's been a hugely supportive uh, community there as well, even if I'm not like picking specific things from specific brains. Yeah, I remember, uh, was it a community event, the end of the Kickstarter, the live stream? Yeah, that was... Um, that was Let me cut you off. There was a live stream at the end of the Kickstarter <laughs> that you could watch people in a very noisy, crowded public place all testing and playing games while the Kickstarter ticked over. And it was really exciting to watch it make the funding goal at the last minute. Yeah, that was that was wild. Um, that was a so it's a community that I haven't really gotten back in touch with, like since the start of the pandemic. And I kind of just found out about that from a fl as a fluke. Um, it was at a bar slash uh, liquor store called the Beer Temple in Chicago, one or two days before the Kickstarter campaign was going to officially end. And yeah, it was just like, I found out about this thing and people were bringing demos of, of games that they, you know, were working on or whatever. And it was kind of like, <clears throat> it was weirdly like auspicious because... I had set up two short demos where I would like run people through a few scenes and I asked people if it was okay if I live streamed it. Um, and they said, yeah, uh, it was a very hasty setup. <laughs> if you were, if you were uh, watching that at all. Yeah. In this, the middle of the second demos when we basically hit our fundraising goal, but the, like the other funny thing about that is at the point that I left my office to go there, I didn't think we were going to hit the goal at all. We were actually like considerably far behind our, our target. Um, and I was like, eh, this might not work, you know? Um, but I, I, I can't remember who or what it was, but like in, during the time I was in a cab ride from my office to the place where we were running this thing, someone on like some fairly big name person on Twitter like retweeted one of the links to the to the thing. I I I, I cannot place who exactly it was, but it just happened to like get a retweet from the right person or something like that. And like in the time that it took me to get over to this place, we had like gone up like twenty five hundred dollars on the on the Kickstarter uh, goal, and all of a sudden it looked like it was actually gonna you know happen. And then it happened in the middle of that game session, so it turned out to like you know work out really well as a like capstone on the whole on the whole thing. But yeah, that's one of those like sort of live in-person game communities that like I haven't seen very much of since the pandemic started. I feel like in general, the gaming community may be more risk averse to the pandemic than possible, which it's probably made events chaotic longer than they may be in other communities or, or scenes. And like, that's, that's just mentioned as an observation. That's not a commentary or judgment call. People, you know, need to take care of themselves and their, their friends and families the way they best way they know how yeah i've uh i've i've definitely seen that um i mean you know in-person conventions have mostly come back um there's still probably a higher rate of people taking precautions there than at almost anything else i go to um but i do know of a decent sized I, I could I could take off a few examples of like things that were live in person events before the pandemic started that like still haven't fully come back, and um, yeah, like 
you know, you make the right, you, you make the choices that are right for you. Yeah. I just went back to Origins for the first time since 2019. And they, I think, I think it's estimated they're at like 60% of the attendance that they were before the pandemic started. This is the first year that's like not been shitty there. Um, it was a great time, but yeah. Yeah, I got to the uh, first uh, Gen Con post post COVID lockdowns, and uh, it was a bizarre, surreal experience. But I wound up having fun. You know, if you drink enough uh, that uh, Gen Con themed beer, uh, things are great. True. Uh, yeah, I would have thought. You know, I was conflicted on it, right? Because I thought we knew. You know, our community knew what Concrud was before anybody else. You know, so I thought on one hand we're prepared for this and then on the other hand we're the most susceptible group for it in a lot of cases so i didn't know how that was going to play out so i'm excited to hear things are it sounds like somewhat returning to normal well and that's like the weird silver lining that i've heard from like like everybody is saying like oh it turns out when i wear a mask to a convention to stop getting covid i also just don't feel shitty afterward because like i don't catch whatever unnamed virus happened to be going around like um so it's a you know it's an, it's an extra add incentive yeah for sure i've been i travel a lot for work i still wear a mask on an airplane and occasionally i will get somebody who'll be like oh you don't have to wear that anymore covid's over and i'm like oh i'm not wearing this for covid they're like why are you wearing it i'm like i just don't want to get sick you know like I, I don't want the common cold like i went i went two years without getting a cold like what like like after 20 after the the pandemic started i got covid twice in that time but i never got a cold i never got anything else so you know something's working well when you have two little kids at home lockdown is no protection against norovirus let me tell you that stuff mm. just <laughs> there's no avoiding it um so i got to uh spend some time with the book recently to prep for this. And uh, where did the action grid come from? Cause I love that as a concept. I, Can you explain what the action grid is? Sorry. Okay. For yeah. Yeah. yeah, at yeah. Home who may not um, have a chance to look at the book. I am going to try to explain it in words. It's definitely a thing that like you want to like look at. Um, but it's uh, so the, the, the sort of like attributes or the, you know, whatever the, the, the scores, of the game called action scores. Um, they're on the character sheet in a grid, right? And this is this basically determines like how many dice do you roll for every single thing you're gonna do in the game. Uh uh, they're they're in this sort of like grid shape. There's um uh on the left hand side of this square grid are five verbs, um, which are uh evade, perceive, uh, pose, perform, and organize. Uh, and then, and that's like, you know, the half of what you're doing, that's like the action. Uh, and then across the top is um, five, put a pin in it, or six uh, sort of nouns, uh, which is like, so it's like you're diagramming a sentence basically. And those are like music, violence, tech, authority, and minds. And then for the star children, for the alien characters in the game, there's Mojo, which is the sixth little column. Um, and visually these make this like sort of uh, a grid of dots that um, is roughly designed to look like a chord chart on, uh, uh, if, on like a guitar tablature. Uh, and uh, that's sort of how you 
derive your scores, what happens is you have a certain number of dots that you're allowed to fill in in this little grid. Um, and then the scores of each of these, the five things on the left and the six things on the top are the number of dots that are filled in in that row or column. Um, what it basically means is every choice you're making when you're filling this little bit in is going to increase two of the scores because you're 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 filling in a point that's at the intersection of one of these rows or columns, um, and uh, the the sort of intent behind that actually comes from uh, that that same group I was I was doing that live stream with. I ran a shorter playtest. Um, but like what, what it, what it essentially means is that if you really want to get good at like, like one particular thing, if you wanted to like really focus yourself on, like there was one guy in this playtest group when we were playtesting character creation, who was like, I'm just going to try to make the character who is the best at violence I could possibly make. Right. Um, good play test, you know, case study. So he's like, okay, I've filled in the dot at the, the the intersection of perform and violence because that's what I use when I hit somebody. That's what I really want to be able to do. I want to be able to perform violence. But like, okay, that increases your perform score and your violence score. If you want to increase your violence score one more again, you do like, let's do evade violence. So I'm also good at like dodging and running away if I want to. And he got through like all the dots except the dot for like organized violence, right? So he's like, well, what is what does it mean if I fill in this dot? Like, well, it's going to increase your violence score, obviously. Um, and it's going to increase your organized violence. He's like, well, what is organized violence? And I said, well, that's like, you know, if you wanted to start a riot or do like terrorism, you know, he's like, so if I want to get better at punching people, if I want to like get that last little bit of like good at punching people, I'm also making myself a better terrorist. And I said, yes, you've figured it out. Um, that's, you know, um, and it was this like, it was this, concept that sort of um i think is re like reflects the theme of the game uh the the sort of central question is like when you specialize in this or this or this like what are you actually doing and sometimes you might end up in a situation where you're like well the best the most effective course of action i can take here is something that might be a little dubious let's say um, and that's sort of reflected in a few different choices all throughout the book. That is a verbal description of something that really only makes sense if you look at it. But um, hopefully, hopefully it made some kind of sense there. Uh, as far as like, you know, the origins of that, uh, that is like, it sort of started with Blades in the Dark. If you're familiar with Blades in the Dark, you have these like groupings of of, of scores, groupings of like three things where if you, you know, in, in the case of Blades in the Dark, you'll have like, four three or four scores that are in a group that go from like zero to four basically right um and you don't have to have a score in any of them so you're those are the things you're rolling to do but out of that group your your score for like the overall ability is the number of ones you have a first dot in right so I didn't even I didn't even re recognize that until you said it out loud. But like, yeah, that's great. I the intersection of these, like that question, how do you? What does it mean to organize violence? That's the point in my read through of the mechanics where I was like, 
I know some pretty clever people. Like, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that was that was the the and 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 on and like I, like I spent a lot of time uh, in the design process, like really frustrated on like what the scores are going to be in this game and like how like the the concept of like you're rolling a bunch of dice and you you do all this stuff was was established long before like what dice do you roll kind of thing. Um, and I was basically like looking at how this blades in the dark thing was. And I'm like, well, what if, what if the first row meant something, but also the second row meant something and the third row meant something and you, you weren't filling them all in a line. Um, and it sort of clicked into place from that. Um, how long did you, uh, have to spend on the wording for it? Cause one of the things that I think is really great if you're reading through the, the rule book is there's an example of each one because it's basically like 25 things. And what I, what I loved about this is like, this is back in the day when I used to sing praises of white wolf systems before, you know, when I had only actually played about two RPGs <laughs> at a bunch, but only played two. I was like, Oh, the flexibility of pairing any attribute with any ability. And then you're like, and, and what, what does bureaucracy do again? <laughs> I don't, um, how are you going to roll strength bureaucracy? And I feel like you've pared it down in a fairly, well, not fairly pretty elegant way. So, I just, I mean, how many hours did you spend tuning? Uh, I don't know how many, but it was a lot. I would say like, like the concept of having that as a grid uh, was one thing. And then figuring out like what things went where and, and, and like, I knew I wanted to be like five by five plus the extra one for the aliens. Right. Um, and also like, uh, I, I will note, I, the, the fact that um because of that structure um the the uh the regular dice the regular maximum number of dice you can roll is 10 but if you're an alien it goes to 11 the the spinal tap reference was not remotely intentional but once i saw it i absolutely was not going to get rid of it basically um Did the uh i didn't i know i remember from discussions in the discord during the kickstarter and earlier uh, I haven't got to read every word of the text. I'll just admit it. Um, it's it's I, a it's a it's a it's a lengthy book. <laughs> um, did the Nick's uh, Buckingham rule make it in? Uh, I realized after we publish it that it did not, oh. and I absolutely I'm that's the one. You know, there's always something about every like published thing that like you sort of kick yourself at uh, over, and that's the one for me. Um, though i would there's generally speaking there were there was the category of stuff that got taken out of the book in the development process the category the the the, the one type of, of 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 rule or whatever uh that got taken out the most was there there was a whole bunch of stuff on like internal band like strife and discord um that didn't really make a ton of sense when your band has this like external threat to worry about but i kind of want to just compile it all in one place and publish it as like a two-page like mini supplement like if you really want to do hardcore like vh1 behind the music like focus on your bands like loving and hating each other this is your little like core add-on kind of thing and i it's gonna go in there if 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 that really happens um because 
I think that's like, that's like an integral part of rock and roll stories that maybe would get missed out if you were like, you have this, like, you know, this, this ever present threat against you, you might gloss over those things. So yeah, it, the, the, the next Buckingham rule sadly did not end up there. Speaking of other aspects of game design, there's something I wanted to ask you about because the world is different between not only just when this started um, and its origins and when the first version of the game was created, it's a much different world now. What is it like to have to have like a sensitivity reader and design a game that's for different groups of people? Whereas maybe back, I don't want to speak for y'all, but back in the day with the original versions of the game, I'm sure those things, you know, weren't fathomable at that point. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there, there was a lot to take in there. Um, but yeah, like, like when the 2002 book came out, like there were maybe three sets of eyes on, on, on the whole text, um, you know, from beginning to end. And, um, it like, um, we, yeah, we, 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 we didn't, we didn't do that, that step of it. It was just sort of like, you know, you, you published a book, whatever this time around, you know, one of the first things we did, was sort of like, look at the, look at the original book and like, think about like, yeah, what, what, what is the stuff that's maybe like outside our frame of reference necessarily, you know, and, and one of the things in my frame of reference that I, that I looked at and I was like, okay, this is a game. It's, it's very glam rock themed. It's very, you know, it, it deals with androgyny. It deals with um, gender in, in, in kind of weird ways, um, I would say. Uh, and I sort of felt like kind of paging through the 2002 edition. I'm like, you know, did we, did we make it a little too, a little too much where like, it looks as if like like being gender non-conforming is something that only aliens do. Basically, it's like one is like one thing because there's a lot of there's a lot of digression about like well the Star Children, you know, didn't really have a you know they have no such thing as a biological sex. They didn't really have any concept of gender until they discovered Earth, and the idea that they had of gender from us was skewed because they were looking at you know TV in the first place, but like specifically like you know, glam rock, uh, uh, the musicians and whatnot. Um, so I was like, eh, you know, maybe that wasn't done, you know, super great. Apparently, you know, I think, uh, fortunately a lot of people who looked at who know a little bit more than I did, uh, disagreed with that and thought it was handled quite well. Um, so I'm like, great, cool. Um, but this time around, yeah, we, we, we wanted to, uh, bring on, you know, sensitivity readers, cultural consultants. I don't remember what exactly they're credited as in the book. If I'm, so I don't have it on uh, on hand right now. Uh, but it was to deal with like two specific, you know, specifically this, you know, the issue of gender. Make sure that we're like presenting that well, um, uh, and also the like the concept of like you know me and Scott being like two white people from the suburbs talking about the history of rock music. Um, you know, there's a lot there. <laughs> um you know and like especially if you're talking about rock music as this like utopian ideal that these characters are striving for um you you, you it's worth mentioning that like you know the rock scene wasn't exactly 100% great for everyone involved in it um particularly not necessarily for the people who originated 
the rock music scene. So yeah, we we you know specifically sought out um, uh, sensitivity readers on like those topics in particular, but also when you bring someone on like this, they they will bring to light other things. It's like it's honestly really great to have like just someone else whose job it is to read the book and tell you what they think. Um, honestly, some of the issues that came up in this, like weren't necessarily what we like set the sensitivity readers out to do. One of them in particular, um, sorry, this is maybe a little bit of a digression, but like um, the two revolutionary factions that are in the, that are in the, the story, which are kind of like meant to be the, the, the two approaches you can take to, to your revolution, either like a more, touchy-feely hearts and minds kind of thing embodied in velvet or the more like direct action, um, hardcore, often more violent uh, group, which in the original book was called the Blue Army. Um, And one of our sensitivity readers said like, hey, this isn't really like in the wheelhouse of what I'm talking about, but... um, since you you describe this group as the blue army and like, you know, there might be people out there who, uh, you know, at this point affiliate, uh, affiliate the blue with like thin blue line or like, you know, um, affiliate the color, the literally just the name of the color blue with the police. Right. Um, we're like, well, you know, that's not really like something that like you have to like, we, we weren't like, Oh, this has to change. This is like, bad this is offensive this is the same thing with that but what it did do is it kicked us off like thinking about it and just being like well if we were going to change it what would we do and we just started looking at like synonyms for blue so we ended up changing the name of it to the cobalt army um mainly because that just sounds a lot cooler um so I remember it, that was one of the things i think i don't know if we had discussed it or if it was something that came up in the discord where i had uh what i over the pandemic you know and everything uh and the, the increasing um like recognizing the core of uh boomer in me to my shame after my initial knee-jerk reaction because when that one was mentioned i was like oh come on and then i got to the point of like how much does it cost to just make more people feel comfortable with this like nothing yeah. it costs nothing to say to more people hey you're welcome to be here and uh you can have a good time right and like I'm and glad if I, I got there because so many people stop at the come on right exactly and it's like like i would i would maybe feel a little um more trepidatious about that if i thought that like um if if it was like near and dear to my heart. The other thing that the sensitivity reader pointed out is that when they Googled Blue Army, they found out that I didn't even know this, that this was like a a, a name for like Aerosmith's fan base. And I was kind of like, I don't. Interesting. I don't need. It actually kind of works. I mean, it's. I don't want to tie myself too closely to Aerosmith here. So we're just going to, we're going to tweak that. And like, yeah, and like I said, like I, like this wasn't this was a this was a change that came out of the sensitivity reading process, but was not necessarily like a sensitivity reading thing. I don't think anyone would have read this and been like offended or mad or anything. But this was almost more generational than anything else. Someone being like, "Well, here's you know what people of a certain age might might be thinking that that name 
they're not going to they're not going to confuse it based on the text in the book. They're not going to think these guys are allied with the police. Um, uh, there's actually maybe a the 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 name of the Star Children's uh, uh, sort of otherworldly powers being Mojo is like maybe something that's a little bit more in line with something that like is a valid sensitivity reading topic because you know that's a word a lot of people are familiar with through a concept through like the context of rock music, Mojo Rise and all that stuff. Um, you know, it's also like a real world religious terminology, you know, having to do with like voodoo and, and, and related sort of syncretic faiths largely, which grew up during the time of slavery. Um, and I had this, like, uh, this, a little bit of a like moment where before sending it to the sensitivity room, I'm like, should I change this before sending it out? Cause I'm like, I'm a little on the fence about it, about how this could be seen as trivializing, whatever, you know, but RPGs have a ton of, a ton of like magic powers that are like someone's real religion, right? This is like an endemic thing and more games than any of us can count. Um, but then I'm like, well, no, that's what a sensitivity room is for. Right. I'm just going to like, like, if if I if I couldn't send this to somebody, then they then I shouldn't be trusting them to be a sensitivity reader. And it was a good thing too, because what this reader came back with as the advice was essentially like, um, like you know, all this context of uh, of the religious and whatnot. Um, but instead of saying like, oh, you got to change this, this is bad, or you know, you shouldn't be talking about this, which like the idea that like you shouldn't be talking about something is fraught at best in my opinion um what they did was they said well can you add something about the characters in the game being aware of this um term having this other meaning and like how that informs what they do about it you know and they were like well during slavery, the, like even just following these religious practices was itself an act of rebellion. Um, and it was a thing that united communities against the oppression that they had. Um, so as a result, we sort of just like wrote into it that like, you know, the star children came down here with this opinion of this terminology um, just from the rock music they'd received, just like a lot of people reading the book might have that same impression, but that once they got here, they gained a new understanding of it and that they saw the commonality here. It sort of becomes a, an in-game sort of parallel. Um, I want to say in a game about a revolution against oppressive authorities who are here to crush your culture, literally putting your money where your mouth is to make sure that, you know, people who may be victims of similar oppression in the real world feel comfortable playing the game is a pretty decent thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was the, and that's, this is the, you know, the, uh, the, the paradox of doing it, it, it sort of goes hand in hand with the paradox of doing any kind of dystopian sci-fi right now where like sometimes even saying that there's a dystopia 50 years in the future is a bit optimistic. Uh, it can feel, 
Um, but there's also the, yeah, the, the, there's the, like, you know, one person's dystopia is like another person's day-to-day life kind of thing. Um, and I don't think that means you should stop telling stories like that. Um, which is what some people, some people either feel or like, it's the sort of end logic of, of sort of uh, discourse on things like that. But like, no, you just have to like, you have to be aware of those things. Right. Like, yeah, I think that's a common problem amongst uh, white creators in many different fields where they feel like they should just be hands off and not touch a particular issue. Um, You know, in, in the writing sphere, I've heard from some white writers who are like, well, I don't talk about, black issues or black characters in my stories because that i don't know about that i'm a white kid from the suburbs i don't have any familiarity with that and i honestly i feel like that's a huge cop-out and if you should you should at least try right and i think that's one of the most commendable things about having a sensitivity reader and making that effort with your game or with any work of creativity is like we can't just we can't just come to a screeching halt like we have to keep trying to do the right thing, even if we fail along the way. So I think you're to be commended by that. Cause I think, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have touched those particular issues in a game or in a work of creativity. So I'm, I'm there uh, with you. Yeah. There's uh, in uh, Chris Spivey's Harlem Unbound. I read this in the first edition. I assume there's something similar in the second edition, which is essentially, you know, um, essentially uh the 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 call of cthulhu lovecraft mythology but set in 1919 harlem instead of 1919 new england um you know written by by chris spivey who's a black man who um uh has this has this uh uh section in there essentially as a like as a message not directly to like to the white players of this game, but like it, it, it touches on, on this, like, you know, specifically telling you um, that like, this is a game about the sort of like Harlem Renaissance black experience with this touch of Lovecraft mythos, which are like two, two ideas that go wonderfully together. Um, And as a bonus would make Lovecraft himself spin in his grave, which is great um right it's it is very specifically being like being like like if you're if your take on a bunch of these things is that that you as like a white player or someone who is not experiencing some type of marginalization whatever it happens to be about um is that like you should never deal with it um you're you're going to end up with something that's far worse right um and that like uh you should try to deal with these issues that are not your personal experience uh maturely and responsibly and it's a good excuse to learn shit you wouldn't have learned before um but you're that like if you're if you're a group of if, if you're like you know a, a group of mostly white gamers who picks up a copy of Harlem Unbound, you shouldn't pick it up and be like, okay, how do I play white people in this? 
because right. good lord you've just absolutely missed the point um yeah, i'm not think- stating that as well as he did but that was a thing that i read that was like it took the edge off some of the concerns i might otherwise have had have you uh have you read coyote and crow i haven't yet no there's a, a really great section that I really appreciate because this that was one that I was like, I don't think I get to play this one, but I'm going to throw money at them anyway because awesome what they're doing. Um, and then I got the book and I looked at it and there's a whole section that I think was phrased a little bit more politely, but you know, I wouldn't have been mad if it was like, hey, colonizer, um, <laughs> if you're a white person playing this, you're totally welcome to. Don't use a real tribe. Don't try to have an accent. Um, <laughs> You know, don't call yourself two spirit. You're not. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, make up make up your own tribe and uh, have fun. Just you know, don't be a dick. And I, I really appreciated that because that that invitation, like, and again, before someone hears this, I am totally fine with there being spaces where that are not for me. I feel there's, like there's a number of spaces that are. Maybe I don't need to have everything. Um, like I. Uh, as, as yeah, the, the, the counter example of that I can think of is like a game like Bluebeard's Bride, um, which is a game that has a lot of domestic abuse, a lot of sexual abuse, like themes to it. There is stuff in there that like as a dude, like I'm probably never going to run a game of Bluebeard, Bluebeard's Bride. I can look at the book. I can think this is great. Um, I, I don't think that's the same thing as like. I can't possibly play a black World War One vet who comes back home, is thrown into the middle of like a, a, a racialized massacre, and there's also Cthulhu there. Like those are two different, two like different scales of things. I'm just like, I'm not gonna play a game about domestic abuse that's where that's like the core theme. Yeah, I threw I threw money at hashtag play. feminism, but if I never play uh, her last text, like <clears throat> I think I'm going to be okay. Right, right, right. So let's talk about because you know the huge number of new gamers that we have now is because of five E D and D. And I had Jesse give a a little bit of a synopsis of the game at the beginning. And if there is a new generation coming in specifically from Dungeons and Dragons, and maybe we can close on this if Jesse doesn't have anything else. Um, but how would we pitch, Rich, how would you pitch Velvet Generation to those 5e gamers? They love D&D. They're curious for more because that was, I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody on this call, but that that was me at some point. All I knew was D&D. And then I got to be curious about what else is out there. So this is your moment to pitch Velvet Generation to people who are curious about it. I honestly think there is like kind of a big D&D parallel because of the zero to hero kind of thing. Like you start out as a little garage band. Nobody knows who you are. You're, you know, you're weak. You don't have a lot of resources, but you like you gain in fame and you gain power. Like, like you, you literally level up in the game. Right. Um, so it, it it's, it's more like a game like D&D than I would say a lot of, sort of indie rpgs um but this idea that like you're you're fighting this nebulous authority concept um is like maybe the major like turning point to like the type of story that it is i ideally in velvet generation you are playing this group of heroes but you are part of a much larger community um and that you go from being unknown to being leaders in this like massive global revolutionary movement 
but that movement would not be anything without the movement itself. You know, um, one one rock band is not going to overthrow the government all by all by themselves. Um, and I think that sometimes that's the kind of it sort of makes concrete the kind of things that like people often end up doing in like a DD type campaign anyway. Like you end up having these recurring NPCs because you like it when the DM does that particular funny voice. Um, so this just like makes that more concrete. Right on. All right. Well, Jesse, do you have anything else you want to ask our guests before we sign off? Uh, yeah, Rich. Uh, if people are out there and wanting to get a copy of Velvet Generation, how do they do so? Uh, well, the number one thing they could do is they can go to their local game store. And if they see it on the shelf, they can buy it uh, or they can order it. Uh, it is in distribution, so most game stores can get it. Um, <clears throat> if you're not lucky enough to have you know, one or several uh, game stores readily available to you, uh, you can search for Velvet Generation on drive through RPG. Um, you can get print copies there. You can get PDF copies there. Um, there's a starter scenario that's pay what you want. Um, that's basically what I've been running at conventions for a couple of years now. Um, there's a website, velvetgeneration.com. On Twitter, velvet underscore G-E-N. Um, <clears throat> I just made a Blue Sky account, um, but it's Velvet Generation, all one word in Blue Sky. I don't know anything about blue sky. I don't know if I'm going to post much there or anything like that, but those are basically how you can find it. All right. Thanks. And Jesse, where can people find more information about you and the John T Mantis online? Uh, well, Rich mentioned being on blue sky. I don't, at, the, at the time we're recording, Twitter did a thing pretty recently that um, again, Twitter did a thing again. So that that'll be vague to history. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm at Jingoist Fett, uh, on Twitter and we are at Jaunty Mantis on Twitter. Uh, there's nothing there. Do not seek us. Like the motto of the 51st state, Tohuck, do not seek us. Pure professionalism here, Rich, as you can tell. We are solid at this trade. The, 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 the goal I feel like with any podcast is to get to the point where the people listening demand that you leave all that shit in mm -hmm. because they're just so weirdly parasocially attached to you. Correct. But when you start out, you actually do have to cut it out. All right. Okay. And for Jesse, Rich, and myself, I'm going to fire off our famous catchphrase, which is get out there and play some fucking games. That's how we were supposed to close the episode. We just, we done fucked up. Creative questions for curious gamers. Get out there and play those games. Yeah, go go play some games or shit. I don't yeah. Know. All right. They're great. Go play Velvet Generation. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>